the American wilderness can get under your skin in unexpected ways. Coming up, we'll hear how beat writer Jack Kerouac couldn't cope with the solitude while working as a forced lookout in the Pacific Northwest. By the end of his stint, he had developed several invisible friends and he was having a highly competitive poker tournament with them all. Terry Tempest Williams reminds us how the erosion in the Utah landscape holds lessons for our times. Suddenly, you know, the Colorado River was running red. People were just stopping, taking pictures, laughing. We were all drenched. And you just think, this is what matters. And this is what cleans our souls. And Becky Lomax explores more national parks. She notes the wilderness at Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota has a fun side, too. They have these silly prairie dog towns where the prairie dogs are running around. Um, They are so social and they are funny. It's all ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Terry Tempest Williams has found that erosion has a lot to say about the times we live in. She explains what the Utah desert has been teaching her lately a little later in the hour. Plus, Becky Lomax recommends ways to immerse yourself in nature at a national park. That's in just a bit. Dan Richards is the kind of guy who goes out of his way to experience the solitude of man-made shelters in some of the wildest ends of the earth. In his book, Outpost, he takes us to ten far-flung posts, including the Cairngorms of the Scottish Highlands, frozen Arctic ghost towns, and mountaintop shrines in Japan. Not far from my home, he also followed in the footsteps of beat writer Jack Kerouac, who spent a summer on assignment at an isolated Firewatch lookout in the Cascade Mountains. So, Dan, where did you go to find this watchtower that Kerouac wrote about? I visited Desolation Peak, which is in Washington State, and in 1956, Jack Kerouac spent 63 days there on top of the mountain, Desolation Peak, as a fire lookout. So his job was to watch for smoke on the horizon where the forested slopes around him might be alight because of lightning striking or misadventure by hikers, things like that. And his job was to radio in these sightings. And he had a turntable before him called an Osborne Firefinder, which is really like a little turntable with crosshairs. So you could get a bearing on um, where exactly this pyre smoke was coming from. And then another lookout on another mountain would do the same. And Mm. then you would have a triangulation and teams of firefighters could be sent to these places to try and put out blazes really before they started. Now, Jack Kerouac spent 63 days there essentially working as as a fire lookout. Why would he spend so much time up there? Was he... Was he there to write, or was he there to escape? Was he there to relax? I think a bit of all of those. His friend Gary Schneider, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and fellow Buddhist, had spent um, a couple of summers up on Sourdough Mountain, which is a, a few miles from Desolation Peak. Although, actually, to get there would take you a couple of days of solid hiking, such is the remoteness mm-hmm. of these areas. And Schneider said to Kerouac that fire lookout duty, it afforded great leisure to write but you had to keep your wits about you and you had to be kind of good with your own company and Kerouac saw this I think as an opportunity to get work done but also ever since he was a young child he'd really wanted to be an outdoorsman you know to go and spend time by himself and discover who really he was in solitude solitude had always been this great undiscovered thing for him But then when he actually went, when he actually spent these 63 days, he got fairly depressed and fairly crazed and fairly feral very quickly. 
by the second week, he'd smoked all of his tobacco. He um, was smoking coffee grounds. By the end of his stint, he had developed several invisible friends, and he was having a highly competitive poker tournament with them all. He'd crawled around in the tiny attic. You have to imagine that this outpost <laughs> is like a little shanty Belvedere, sort of like almost a conservatory because he needed 360-degree views of all the mountains around him to do his job. So it has this tiny little attic, and he crawled up into this attic, and he'd read all of the newspapers that were up there for insulation. He had made all these notes, but he'd gone pretty crazy. And I think, as with so many people, when they go to the wild places, their idea of what they'll be like and the reality was vastly different for him. But then later... He wrote about his stay. He wrote about the stay three times in three different books. It's in The Derma Bums, it's in Desolation Angels, and he wrote about it in his essay collection, A Lonesome Traveller. And each time that he writes about it, he reframes himself as better at being alone, as a better outdoorsman, I think, than he actually was. Because, it, you know, a year to the day that he came down from his mountain eyrie on the road was published. Huh. And his life changed overnight, you know. He went from a position where he couldn't get arrested, this guy. You know, everyone knew about Kerouac, but nobody wanted to publish him. And then almost overnight, On the Road comes out, and he turns into this almost proto-Dylan TV radio age superstar, where his time is not his own anymore. You know, everyone wants to buy him a drink. Everyone wants his unpublished material to publish. And for a quite addictive personality to put it mildly, of Kerouac. This was the worst thing in a way that could have happened to him. And I think he looked back on these 63 days of solitude as both a missed opportunity in a way that he wished he'd been better suited for it, but also as this halcyon time, because he never knew that kind of silence again. His life became overnight, blaringly loud. He became public property. That is such a fascinating story. I mean, this time on the Watchtower really was... Uh, a threshold for him, wasn't it? It was the making of him in a way, but also it was the breaking of him. And I put myself in Kerouac's shoes and I imagine the shame that he felt when he had to radio in a plea for help, for more tobacco, mm. for some food, you know, <laughs> because he wanted to be the guy who could own it, you know, own his stint, almost in a kind of military way. Right. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the lookouts that the U.S., Forest Service have now, they're veterans, you know, people who have been trained to look after themselves. Right. And Kerouac imagined he was like that. But then when he actually got there, when he actually set himself up, he discovered he was not the man he thought he was. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dan Richards. And Dan wrote a fascinating book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. And we're specifically talking of the 10 outposts that Dan did visit and discuss in his book. We're talking about the outpost in my home state of Washington. It's Desolation Peak in the North Cascades. And Dan, you don't just call an Uber and, and go there. You have to earn these spots. What was it like getting to the Desolation Peak fire lookout? We drove north to a place called Bellingham, and then we turned off the main highway and we began to, um, we went east. There's a town called Concrete, which was uh, Kerouac had pegged as the last five and dime before, you know, you really hit the wilds. I spent a night in a place called Marble Mount, and that was where I had a motel. And then the next morning I went to the ranger base and I got my bear canister so I could store all my food away from my tent because I was camping up there. And then carried on up and you're following the Skagit River. 
and you go up past the Ross Dams. There are three amazing dams up there. Um, and you keep going, and then you're really, really beginning to get over the kind of battlements and in to this kind of like amazing savage fortress of the Cascade Mountains. And then, in my case, what I did was I had all my kit and I got a boat up Ross Lake with an amazing guy called Malachi, who, um, you know, he looked like a young Neil Young, and he had this brilliant fast boat and so we rocketed up this lake and he he really has the monopoly on you know boats on the lake and in Kerouac's time he went up far slower than I did and then you get to the foot of Desolation Peak itself and you spend the rest of the day so you're on your second day by this point zigzagging your way and foot slogging back and forth on these hairpin turn paths all the way up the mountain and then you get to your campsite and maybe you pitch your tent and you put all your stuff in your bear canister and you put it far away from your tent. And then in my case, I carried on up over a false summit to the actual top. And it was there that I met the current fire lookout, a man called Jim Henterley. And it was amazing to meet him because, um, as you say, I was imagining I would be on my own up there. But no, there's Jim. And he's, I think he just missed Vietnam, but he was in the 101st, the storied 101st Airborne Division. And so I'm up there with Jim and he immediately offers me coffee and we're in this amazing glass panelled space of his fire lookout. And it was such a privilege to be there and talk to this man. But then you went all that way and what a journey to get solitude. And then you find Jim up there. And I would imagine Jim's been stuck up there with nobody to talk to. You've ventured all the way there to have solitude and you're just like somebody to talk to for this guy. If he's interesting, that would be maybe wonderful. But if he's not interesting, wouldn't that be a huge disappointment for you and your agenda to get away from it all? Absolutely, in a way. I think every book that I've written, it has this crux point where things are either going to go really well or they're going to go really badly. And I knew that I would get up to the top of Desolation and I'd maybe meet this one individual and either he would be incredibly welcoming and he would say, come on in and have a look at, you know, this outpost. Or he would say, no, you can't come in. I don't want to talk to you. Go back down to your tent. There's nothing for you here. Oh, because you don't really make it. It's not an Airbnb. I mean, you're you're just knocking the door and and you say, "Uh, hi. And he'd go, where'd you come from? Get out of here. Or... Come on in, have a cup of coffee. Exactly, because the fire lookout is still in use. Jim is very much a working watchman, and also he relays a lot of radio signals in that area. So he is an important guy in that area. Did he give you your solitude? He was welcoming. Yeah, he left me alone, and I left him alone. Being on a mountain, you know, all you have to do is walk 20 meters in any direction, and you are entirely alone. In that savage fortress of the North Cascades, that is such a beautiful way to put it. So when you're up there and you have a magic moment, you've got your solitude, you've got your vast view and the sun's going down, what was the moment? It was just bliss, really. It was happiness. I was exhausted having hiked all that way. And then to be in that particular building, that little shed, the glass shed, this pagoda-style outpost, with this excellent man, Jim, and we had coffee and we watched the mountains turn from pink to blood red to vermilion and through all the purples you can imagine and then night came on and we were talking and then I went back down to my tent and halfway through the night I was woken up by a bear. I mean you can't get any better than that I don't think. That's the sort of thing I love. I just love this notion that travel can be transformative. It must be transformative to go to a place like that that is so pristine, so alone and then when you come back home 
you are different. What Absolutely. is your take on that? What's the value of this, and, and why is that important today? There's a line of William Blake, which is that the eye changed changes all. You view the world through different eyes, if only you would go and see. And I think if you go and you truly see, you will try in your future life to leave less trace, to do least harm. And I think if a few more kind of policymakers and people with clout were to go to these places and actually see their beauty, see their fragility, they would be changed. And on a smaller level, I think we as good citizens of Earth need to do this as well and think about the damage that maybe we're doing and maybe just try and take things in and be good conservators and citizens. Dan Richards, your book is called Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. Happy travels, Dan, and, and thanks again for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. May you Becky Lomax recommends more fun places to explore in the U.S. national parks in just a bit. But first, Terry Tempest Williams tells us how paying attention to nature is helping her cope with recent political disappointments. She tells us what the forces of erosion are teaching her next on Travel with Rick Steves. Terry Tempest Williams has been noticing how the forces of erosion define the landscapes of the Utah desert near her home outside Moab. In a different way, she suggests erosion also seems to be at work in American society and in recent setbacks to environmental protections. Her latest book features essays and thoughts for these times. It's called Erosion, Essays of Undoing. Terry, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, Rick. It's always a pleasure to travel with you on radio. So, Terry, you spend a good part of your year in Boston at the Harvard Divinity School as a writer-in-residence and teaching there. And the rest of the time, you write from your home base in Utah, and you wake up in the morning surrounded by the desert. Why do you choose to live in the desert? It's a humbling privilege. Everything is changing all the time, minute by minute. I love to rise with the sunrise On Sunday, it was at 5.50 a.m., so I went outside to say my prayers, to just watch the sun come up in this one particular canyon by Adobe Mesa just outside our place, and the sunrise didn't come until 6.22, and I just love knowing those details. I love being able to watch the arc of the sun, that at solstice it will be in that crease of canyon, whereas in the winter solstice it will be coming up right directly in one of the peaks of Takanikovitz or in the LaSalle's. So to be able to see the full arc of a year just by where the position of the sun is, it just feels like a great pleasure and privilege. It's so interesting you say that because I live on a little bluff in my town and I look out across the Puget Sound and the sun sets on a different peak right through the season, you know, on the Olympic Mountains. And then right now it's, you know, it's in a certain spot. And I always imagine that Native Americans who lived here 200 years ago would stand on the same bluff, and they would be so much closer to nature to me that this would be the Mm. rhythm of their whole life. And I have to Mm. remind myself, it's so easy to ignore nature the way we live, and it's such a beautiful thing in your travels or in your daily life. Get up and say your prayers as the sun is rising right where you know it's going to rise. And it's just a, a reminder that we're surrounded by nature, but we can choose to be tuned into it or not. Give us another moment about being in nature where, where you are connected and you realize 
that's a beautiful ethic for your life. Well, I remember in March, we were driving down the river road from Castle Valley, where we live, to Moab. It's about a half-hour drive, maybe 45 minutes, depends. And we were just in this cloudburst. You know, you couldn't even see. And we decided to just pull over. And within seconds, between the time we left our home and the time we arrived in Moab, we counted 53 waterfalls and pour-offs. It was like the first day of creation. (laughs) And suddenly, you know, the Colorado River was running red. I mean, people were just stopping, taking pictures, laughing. We were all drenched. And you just think, this is what matters. And this is what cleans our souls. It was so thrilling. And you just think, I can't imagine living anywhere else. And, you know, you're watching the world erode before you. And I thought, all right, the world may be eroding before us every day in the news, but this is the kind of erosion that creates beauty and humility where you realize, Mm. you know, we're just one species among many and flushed with gratitude. Well, the Grand Canyon is a good example of, of the beauty of erosion, isn't it? Oh, I mean, the stratigraphy of time, deep time, what gets weathered away. I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, my husband blindfolded me, and he walked me out to the rim and then took off my blindfold. And I just gasped. And Hmm. I said, why didn't someone tell me about this? And he goes, Terry, I think people are aware of the Grand Canyon. (laughs) But what struck me was not what remains, but what had been weathered and eroded away. That's what moved me was all that negative space, thinking, you know, wind, water, time, deep time, carried through the Colorado River for eons. So we can talk about climate change later, but right now when we're talking about erosion, that's a natural process. The desert is kind of the triumph of erosion, isn't it? It's a beautiful way of putting it, Rick. You know, weathering is is the whittling away of stone, and erosion is the process by which it gets carried away, which I think is really interesting. Hmm. And it's easy to get carried away in the desert. Um, You're forced to stand in the center of extremes, extreme drought, extreme flood, fire, wind. It's not an easy place to live, but it's an intentional place to be. Mm. It's humbling, isn't it? Because it reminds you how small and insignificant we are in the big natural scheme of things. That's right. And without water, you don't exist. And we've seen that. We've seen it on the land with the vegetation, with the animals, the birds in particular, Also, you know, we have not planned. There have been times where Brooke and I thought, let's just go out and go for a walk, and we haven't taken enough water. You have to be really conscious living in the desert, or else you're on peril. The desert seems like such a arid. To me, arid means lifeless. But there's more life hiding in the desert than we realize, and a lot of it is pent up and ready to spring, isn't it? You know, the funniest thing happened, we are now 600% above average precipitation. Last year we were in drought, you know, and it's been an ongoing drought. This year it's just the heavens have poured forth. And if you can believe this, a couple of nights ago we heard frogs. We have not heard frogs in 20 years. And it was just so moving because somewhere in the arroyo those eggs have, have held. And Brooke and I just listened to this choir of frogs and just... It was so beautiful. There's joy hiding out in the desert. Terry Tempest Williams was recently given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Los Angeles Times for her work that focuses on the American West. Her book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing, will be released in a few days. 
She's also written The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks. Take us on a little walk from your house that you enjoy and be our tour guide for a minute as you walk through the desert behind the home of Terry Tempest Williams. There's a canyon that I will not name, nor will I say where it is, but it's one that we love. We call it the Circle Trail. You walk late in the afternoon, um, afternoon light, reflective light, and canyon walls rise upward like praying hands. You see sumac berries, red, knowing that they can be gathered and crushed and boiled and create a beautiful pudding with white cornmeal. You also see ants taking those red berries, pushing them uphill, and you think, how can they have that kind of stamina and determination? You see juniper trees, hundreds of years old, shaped by the wind with skirts of juniper berries, Mm. the color of the clouds of an afternoon thunderstorm. You keep walking and you see veins of gypsum, white, embedded in the red sandstone. You keep walking and you get to a particular pass on the trail and you can see for miles. You swear that you can see the curvature of the earth. And it's the stillness. Hmm. It's the quiet. And it's the perspective that one is given with a walk like that. So we all get a chance, not to walk down your favorite secret valley, but to walk in a desert or to walk in an arid, vast landscape and feel that solitude and feel that silence. As a travel writer, give us just a practical travel tip for appreciating the desert. I think it's just being still and paying attention. I know that I'm in a good place when I can hear the wing beats of ravens flying over me, or can feel the wind, or watch clouds pass over and feel the shadow of those clouds. Mm. To me, the joy of being in the desert is, is really just being, not doing. I always take a journal, a small notebook with a pencil, because something, you know, extraordinary might happen or there's a description that I don't want to forget. But mainly I just love observing, listening, favoring the senses, and just being quiet. You write that uh, the desert has you thinking about owls. What did you mean by that? You know, to be in one of the canyons, the slot canyons, or walking through a wash where there's cottonwoods on either side you know there are owls. I feel their eyes, you know, and then suddenly you'll turn and you actually see those yellow eyes that could burn grasses with their stare. Great horned owls, screech owls, flammulated owls, burrowing owls. They're all around, but it's always a gift when you see one. And it always gives me pause. You know, owls have night vision. And more and more, I think we're being called upon to adopt night vision, Uh, not be frightened Mm. by darkness and what may be ahead, but to develop that so that we can stand in the shadows and not be afraid, but to also make a commitment not to look away. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Terry Tempest-Williams. Terry is a well-known environmental activist in her home state of Utah. She's also been serving as writer-in-residence at the Harvard Divinity School, and you'll see her byline on articles in the New York Times. She explores how to respond to recent anti-environmental governmental policies in her latest collection of essays. It's called Erosion. Her website is coyoteclan.com. Terry, we've been talking about 
the desert and, and the hidden wonders of the desert and the richness of the desert, your new book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing, is a lot of thoughts inspired by your love of nature and your time in the desert. What's the connection with erosion and your concerns about our environment and how it applies to what's going on today with our society in regards to how we take care of our environment? Well, just as we see erosion in, in the narrative of the Grand Canyon or in a place like Castle Valley or Arches, Canyonlands, I think we're seeing erosion of a different sort in our own democracy, an erosion of decency, an erosion of a belief in science, an erosion of our collective empathy. And to me, it seemed a worthy metaphor to stay with. You know, it could be said that this is a a dark book. I don't see it that way. Because I think living in times of drought, you know that there's going to be another cycle, or you throw your taproot deeper, just as you see the plants do. Or you know that there are seeds that are dormant, but when the rains come, when you smell that rain, petrichor, it's the same for our spirit. So I think it's a book about endurance. It's a book about patience and persistence. It's ultimately, I think, a book about love, loving the open space of democracy, really being committed to stepping to the side and letting Native people lead. That's what's happening in the state of Utah. And I am so humbled and honored and moved by the leadership of the Diné, of the Navajo, of the Hopi, of the Zuni, of the Ute, Mountain Ute, and Ore Ute. We have a lot to learn from them. I think that's what's happening in the state of Utah. You know, the tribes are speaking, and it makes those married and committed to the status quo, very uncomfortable. Erosion is uncomfortable. It can be dangerous, Hmm. but it's what creates bare-bone beauty. Now, Terry, I I read in your book that you noticed uh, President Trump had a portrait of Andrew Jackson moved into the Oval Office. That sounds like a pretty strong statement. What does that say to you? Well, he was known as Indian Killer. If you read history, Andrew Jackson has a very dark, shadowed history of Indian removal, the Trail of Tears, it goes on and on. And he, you know, to me, that was the first thing I noticed is that, you know, each president can decorate their office as they want. And after the golden curtains, we saw the portrait of, of Andrew Jackson. I can tell you my Native friends took that as, a, as an affront. Yeah. To, to your knowledge, has President Trump ever visited Bears Ears or any of these places Never. that are threatened? Never. He saw it as a real estate deal. He said, when I hear a place with a million acres, I perk up. So um, if he visited, you know, this was, if he visited, he might even harden his views and, and not change his views. I would think if he could get him there and take him on a hike, as uh, what well, the great naturalist took Theodore Roosevelt on a hike, right? John, John Muir. Muir. And then Roosevelt just really saw the light about the preciousness and the eternal beauty of our, our natural spaces. You know, I think we all fantasize of being able to take Donald Trump on a walk. I'm not talking about a cliff. I'm talking about a beautiful walk in one of the gulches. There's enough optimism in me that maybe with a man under such assault, maybe he he would hear something. I know that some of the tribal elders would love nothing more than to have him come speak to them. Mm-hmm. And the thing that moves me so deeply about an organization like Utah Dene Bekea, where you have elders like Willie Grayeyes, who's now a county commissioner, 
or Jonah Yellowman, who is the spiritual advisor for Bears Ears Coalition, or Mary Benali, or Evangie Gray, you know, they are all saying Bears Ears is about healing. Mm -hmm. And we're not just protecting this place for us, but for all people. What are public lands? What are the big issues here? Is it like it shouldn't be public? It should be we're free Americans. We should be able to do with it what we want. Or what's the issue and what is it? Every American citizen is land rich. We have 640 million acres that belong to all of us. And I think most Americans don't realize that. These are public lands. They're multiple use lands. There are forests. There are national parks, refuges, monuments. What kind to of me, a person? it is the open space of democracy. And right now, our public lands, our federal lands, are under threat because of oil and gas leasing. I just saw that in the fiscal year of 2018, the United States government from oil and gas lease sales made $1.1 billion. And I think what people don't realize in these oil and gas lease sales, we have oil companies, executives, that are bidding on these lands that belong to all of us for as little as $1.50 an acre. And that's what I think people mm -hmm. don't realize. And right now with this particular administration, it's open for business, and Utah is at the brunt of it. So you wrote, broken down, worn down, cracked and dry. And that can actually be good. That's a message of hope. Develop that just a little bit, because I know erosion can be a hopeful thing when we look at where our society is today. Water breaks down stone. If you think about that, if, if people truly engaged in the democratic process, beginning with voting, we can wear down stone. And that is powerful to me. You know, our erosion as a country could also be our capacity to evolve. So we are eroding and evolving at once. Our undoing is our becoming. It's holding these, the full range of our emotions at once. Again, it's that night vision choosing not to look away from what is difficult. And this isn't about belief, this is about engagement. And I think ultimately, this collection of essays is how do we engage in our communities with empathy, the capacity to listen, not judge. Hmm. I can tell you with a name like Tempest, it's hard for me not to get angry at times, but I know they have their point of view. I want to know what that point of view is. The tribes keep telling us, you know, Jonah Yellowman, the spiritual advisor of Bears Ears, keeps saying, Bears Ears is about healing. This is what we need in our country is to heal. And we can only heal if we can face each other and ask the difficult questions and not walk away. And we need those tap roots that dig deeper when the soil is dry. We need those eyes of owls. <laughs> and we need to appreciate that erosion can be evolution. And when the downpours come, to just stop and say, look at this. We do it alone and we do it together. And that's also what the desert teaches me. You don't survive in the desert alone, even though it's the solitude I seek. You survive in the desert through community, and we will survive this democracy in the same way. I think you just summed up your calling in life, both as a travel writer based in the deserts of Utah and as writer in residence at the Harvard Divinity School. Terry Tempest-Williams, thanks again for joining us. It's always great and inspiring to talk to you. And uh, congratulations on your book, Erosion, Essays of Undoing. Thank you so much, Rick, for the way you guide all of us. 
The author of a guidebook to all of the U.S. national parks takes your calls next at 877-333-7425 as we get inspired to get out into the American wilderness. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Our national parks have famously been called America's best idea. That's because they're absolutely democratic and reflect our nation at its best. Becky Lomax lives and breathes the national parks. She grew up the daughter of a national park ranger in Washington State, hiking on Mount Rainier and backpacking through the Olympics. In college, Becky worked summers at Glacier National Park, where she later returned as a backpacking guide. Her latest book is The Moon Guidebook, USA National Parks. It has detailed tips on accommodations, activities, and highlights of the 59 national parks around the United States, ranging from Haleakala in Hawaii to the Virgin Islands, the Great Smoky Mountains to Death Valley. Becky Lomax, it's great to have you here. Thank you. You know, it just reading your book, it sounds like you nearly live in campgrounds. Tell us, <laughs> tell us about how you researched and wrote this book because it is vast. I mean, what is it? It's 700 pages and it never gets old for you. No. In fact, returning to some of the same parks over and over never gets old either. But it it was a huge project to do. And part of it is a lifetime of visiting parks for me. And also, we relied on other moon riders who are experts in their local parks. And so we took some of their material and adapted it for the books. Now, it just sounds like you get a lot of joy from it. And uh, it just, it has that exuberance. Uh, In the intro of the book, you wrote, These 59 parks are masterpieces spread around the United States. The artistry of nature paints their rainforests with mossy green, their lakes of vivid blue, and their canyons in shifting oranges and reds. Their beauty is in the wilderness. These are the mountains that let nature wash through us, that offer us renewal of the human spirit. Talk a little bit about, before we get into specific travel tips about the parks, just the importance of these natural experiences in our lives when we're getting so urban and so uptight and life is speeding up and speeding up. Why are these parks worth the trouble? They're so worth it because they take us out of that crazy electronic existence we're in right now where we're always checking our emails and our texts and stuff. And what's beautiful in so many parks is there is no cell service. <laughs> Do people, I bet some people go, is there Wi-Fi there? That's yeah. probably the first question. And there isn't in some of them. We're so. hiking up to base camp on Mount yeah. Rainier. Is there Wi-Fi? Yeah. Sorry. So you can get away from it, and you can experience things like silence where you're not hearing, you know, honking horns of traffic, and you can see the night sky where you're looking at stars, and so many people don't even see the stars anymore in cities. You know, so that's beautiful. That is something we actually forget about it. Even people, I mean, I consider myself somebody who loves nature, but I can't remember when I saw stars reflecting in a river at midnight. Yeah. And then I was in a beautiful park in Idaho and I saw stars reflecting in the river. And I thought, I got to get out a little more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gorgeous. So let's just travel a little bit. Share some of the experiences. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to throw them at you. Okay. Um, hiking on a beach. One of the, my craziest experiences, you'll appreciate this as being a Washingtonian, was years ago backpacking the entire stretch of the Hoe. Okay. Right. Beach area. All the the whole, because because I can think of the whole river valley and the rainforest there. Yeah, but there's a whole... Right down to the beach. On yeah, the there's a rugged whole 50-mile section along coast. the beach, and yeah. you walk some sand beach, and then you climb up over these 
heads, big, rocky, mossy, fern-covered heads that are full of slippery mud. (laughs) And you probably earned uh, the solitude a little bit by walking from your car park. Oh, yeah. If you're going to get out of your car and walk 100 yards and complain about the crowds, you're not trying hard enough. (laughs) No. (laughs) There's plenty of places to find solitude. So which park was this on the Ocean Coast? Olympic National Park. The Olympic National Park. Yes, part of Olympic National Park. And that would be where the whole, it's called the whole... We've always called it the whole river stretch, and it's a really long backpacking stretch in there. Okay. Now talk about wildlife watching. I mean, where does wildlife uh, intersect with the popularity of our parks? Oh, it's huge. You know, everyone thinks of Yellowstone as one of the best for wildlife watching because it's got bison and wolves and pronghorn and bighorns and goats and you name it. It's got it all. But get this. I went this spring to Theodore Roosevelt Park in North Dakota, of all places, and was blown away at the wildlife watching. Huh. Well, there was bison walking right through our campsite, for one. Eagles flying overhead. They have these silly prairie dog towns where the prairie dogs are running around. Um, They are so social, and they are funny. And we're watching them, and here come a pair of coyotes in hunting the prairie dogs. And then, a little bit down the road, we're stopping and looking at some other stuff, and here's the horses, wild horses running through the park. It was just fantastic. See, you wouldn't think about that. Everybody goes to Yosemite and so on to see, you know, the famous parks. But there's so many more. And that's what you talk about in your book. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Becky Lomax. And she's our guide for the U.S. national parks right now. Becky's written books on Yellowstone, Grand Teton, Glacier National Park. Her latest is a comprehensive Moon USA National Parks guidebook with more than 700 pages of information and maps for getting around and exploring each of America's 59 national parks. We have links to the guidebook and to Becky's website with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Becky, when you're thinking about the best of the parks, because it's a little overwhelming for a lot of Americans, you know, oh, yeah. uh, we want to see the national parks. Well, God, there are so many. It depends <laughs> a lot about what your appetite is for natural adventure. If you want a serious hike, let's say you're in good shape, you're ready for some exertion, what would be a very rewarding long day hike where you've got to be aggressive? I would say something like the Highline Trail in Glacier National Park. Describe that. You start up right at the Continental Divide at Logan Pass and walk 7.6 miles north right under these peaks the whole way. And then you're Uh looking down these swooping, scooped out glacial valleys. Are you on a ridge? You're on the side of a hill, and Uh in some cases you're on a cliff where the trail is only about three feet wide. Is there a cable? There is a little cable to hold on to. I'm so thankful for those cables. (laughs) You know, you wrote in your book about the Half Dome at Yosemite. Mm -hmm. That sounded like it would push the limit for a lot of people. It would. Would you have have a guide to do that, or could you do it on your own? No, you you can do it on your own. You do have to get a permit to do it. You can't just go up willy-nilly and do it. I mean, it That's like, takes you've got to leave stamina. in the dark. You, it's you all day long. It's a 12-hour hike. Yeah, and it takes a lot of stamina, and the top of it is tough because you are climbing up this really it's just steep... just a bald rock. Yeah, and it's kind of got this cable So you can hang to on to hold that on cable. To, you, yeah. But that's not going to pull you up the hill. No. <laughs> It'll keep you from <laughs> you blowing got, off it. Yeah, you got to get yourself up Now, it, one so. that really seems to be very rewarding without the um, 10 hours of sweating to earn it and, mm-hmm. and any sort of scariness is Angel's Landing. Oh, it's amazing. It's in Zion. When you actually start your climbing, you're going up this winding 
built-up rock staircase and switchbacks called Walter's Wiggles. Walter's Wiggles. Yeah, so you go up Walter's Wiggles, and then you eventually get to a saddle at the summit, which is literally, it drops off on both sides. And then you are climbing this knife ridge from there to the top. And a of knife Angel's ridge Slater. really is that. And there, thank yes. God, there's a cable or a little uh, if, uh, in a few places to hang on to when necessary. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend taking tiny kids up there. No, but that's crazy. that's a highlight of Zion. So if you're going to Zion, yeah. and 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 that would be something that you know, if you're reasonably fit, you could do just yes, hang under the cable. Abs- yeah, and it's definitely shorter than half. Now, what about natural thrills for visitors with disabilities or you know grandparents and so on? There are a lot of trails that are designed for people that need special accessibility Mm -hmm. to things. Boardwalks in particular. Boardwalks. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of parks have them. One of them is Congaree National Park, and it's on the East Coast. Oh, okay. And it's in a swamp. And it's got this long boardwalk that works all the way through the swamp because you can't go you know, you'd have oh, yeah. to put on huge but that waders gets you and close drown to the swamp, swamp nature. Yeah, you go right into it. Yeah. Are there information panels where you can mm-hmm. make it a nature walk? Yes, yeah. Uh, I like that one. Yeah, interpretive that. panels. I think the whole river has something like that, too, yes, when you go up yeah. into the rainforest. If you've never right. been in a rainforest. Hall of Moss's Trail up there yeah. has it, yeah. So there's a lot of accessibility. There's also, I get a sense in the park system, a passion for junior rangers, young <gasps> young visitors. yes. Most parks have what's called a junior ranger program, Uh and it's specially designed for kids. You stop at the nearest visitor center and pick up a booklet, or it's a newspaper in some parks, and it has all kinds of kid activities in it that are designed for that specific park. So the kid does it, fills it all out, and then later in your adventures, you go back to the ranger station the rangers swear you in as a junior ranger. You have to take oh, the, the kids pledge. Must love it. And then you get <laughs> a badge or a patch. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Becky Lomax, who you can tell loves her work. Her book, <laughs> USA National Parks, a complete guide to all 59 parks. And Becky, when we're talking about junior rangers, you wrote about explorer backpacks from the visitor centers so the kids can pick up these backpacks that give them, uh, loan them the tools to. Admit- yes. Yeah, and they're actually designed for families with okay. kids to go out and do adventures, and they'll help lead them through, like, sometimes on trails, and they have to go look and find certain okay. things. Some of the backpacks will have, you know, little microscope-type thingies, so you can look really yeah. close at items and identify those. And, and uh, teach kids how to observe smartly, but yes. leave only footprints, that exactly, sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. which is really important to learn. Now. A little older kids might want to have some light adrenaline sports. And, and you talk about sandboarding down the majestic dunes at Great Sand Dunes National Park. Yes. I'd love to do that. It's like, yeah. It's sandboarding. Just, it's like surfing on sand. Snowboarding on sand. Snowboarding, yeah. Yeah, that's about the best equivalent for right. it. Let's say you got teenage kids and you're going to the parks. What, what are some of those kind of activities that would be appropriate that come to mind? In general, there's a lot of parks, especially in the West, that have horseback rides. Uh-huh. You know, for teenagers, that's perfect. Get on a horse and head off on the trail. You know, when, I was, a, check when it out. I was a teeny bopper, I must have been 12 years old or something. I was uh, in the next country north in Canada at Banff, uh-huh. Banff and Jasper. <laughs> and I'll never forget, it was probably the greatest day of my childhood when my parents spent the money. It was pretty expensive for us back then to rent, go on a horse, uh, a horse ride through the Jasper National Park. And we saw the most wonderful wildlife and the, oh, just yeah. nature in action from the top of a horse. It was 
It was magical for yeah. a kid. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Becky Lomax, the author of The Moon Guidebook to USA National Parks. Her website is beckylomax.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Anne's calling in from Lakemont in Georgia. Hi, Anne. Hi. We are National Park geeks. Um, <laughs> our pre-retirement career was to be National Park Rangers, and um, we've bled well over past retirement age, and we still work as seasonals at Acadia National Park. Hmm. And I agree with um, your guest. I never get tired of Acadia, and I've been there 19 seasons. Um, it's just my place, and it's a wonderful place for all kinds of people. Carriage roads for accessibility and just great trails. Love it. Talk a little bit about this uh, working as a seasonal ranger. Is this a, a volunteer thing, or uh, retired people are doing it, or you can do it at any different park? What's the deal? You can do it at any age. We're paid staff, mm-hmm. although I must say that the volunteers that work at the park, they're the true saints. But we do get paid for our labor. Green and gray, that's paid staff. The khaki pants and the shirts, or brown pants and shirts, those are the uh, volunteers. But um, lots of young people trying to get their foot in the door, although it's very difficult to transition from uh, seasonal to permanent because of, you know, budget cuts and that sort of thing. But we're old anyway, so, you know, for us to work five months in the summer funds our winter travel. And where do you stay and how do you do room and board when you're working this way? Our park, Acadia, does have some housing, and so we've been fortunate enough to be able to get a one-bedroom apartment. It's not deluxe. (laughs) <laughs> um, a lot of the volunteers come with their big RVs, and there's a spot to, you know, yeah. park them. And it's just a great arrangement, but lots of shared housing. And a beautiful backyard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if your backyard is not beautiful, it's a short walk to beautiful. All right. Hey, well, that sounds like some great way for people, especially if they've got, you know, if they're retired and still active and love yep. nature. Yep. Which park did you enjoy best? You've worked at several over the years. Um, I, Acadia is my park, Acadia. but you know, it's not for everybody. I mean, Scott has different preferences, but he tags along with me to Acadia. Okay. <laughs> well, that sounds like you guys have a fun, uh, dynamic duo of, uh, part-time park rangering. Thanks for your call, Ann. All right. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Trish is on the line from Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Trisha. Hi, Rick. How are you guys? We're doing great. Becky's getting me all excited about going to national parks. What are your thoughts about national parks? Well, like your previous caller, my husband and and all my children are big national park uh, lovers. We've been to most of the national parks, but I had a really special experience this last June. Um, I am 65 years old. I've had both my knees replaced. Um, two weeks before we left on this particular trip, I had my shoulder replaced, and I am a stroke survivor. I had had a picture taken of myself, um, I believe it was in 1973, and it was on the top of Morrow Rock in um, Sequoia National Park. And I was bound and determined, I told my husband, I need that picture taken again of me 46 years later. And he looked at me like I was crazy, but we set off, and um, it took me quite a while. (laughs) It's a very strenuous hike up to the top of the rock. Everyone was encouraging me along the way. I just was pushing myself to the point where I could hardly breathe, but I was bound and determined. And I made it up to the summit, 
and had my picture taken at the exact spot that I had my picture taken 46 years ago. Oh, that is so awesome. I'm so proud of you. It was such an amazing feeling, and everybody around me was cheering. It was really special. Trisha, that's an inspirational story. If we get your photograph, can we put it on our web? Absolutely. All right. We'll have that in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Trisha, you're an inspiration. And uh, Becky, can you describe Morro Rock for us? What park is that, and, and what would it be like for the rest of us who uh, aren't going up there uh, with such a, a triumphal <laughs> approach with new knees and new shoulder and surviving a stroke? That... It is in Sequoia uh-huh. Kings Park. They're kind of joined as one park now. Okay. It is a strenuous hike. It's yeah. not one that you just kind of strike, you know, anybody would enjoy going to do. So, you've, you've got uh, to, so it's got some elevation to it. You've got to be in shape or very motivated, e- like Trisha. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Hey, well, Trisha, I hope you get up there again uh, someday. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Thanks th- for all your good work. You bet. Thanks for your Take call. Care. Bye now. Bye bye. That is so cool. That's a great story. Clearly, parks connect us with nature and they give us those personal moments in so many different ways. After talking with Trish, I'm just thinking so many people are listening and so many people can be inspired by embracing our park system, which is just down the road from so many of us. Let's say you, who wrote the book on national parks in the United States, could take a big city person, a person who'd never hopped from stone to stone across a stream, someone who'd never glissaded down a bank of shale, somebody who'd never felt that king-of-the-mountain thrill atop his or her own just-conquered peak. What national park experience would you give that person? I think I would want to take that person to the Grand Canyon because you get to the edge of that canyon, and everybody's seen pictures, but you get there in person, and it's huge. And then you hike down in it, and it is a whole different world. And you get to touch those rocks, 5,000, you know, year or whatever, million years of rocks, I mean, piled up. And you get to touch all those different layers and then finally get down to the river. Okay. And it's just impressive. And then you call your helicopter and it takes you out. (laughs) (laughs) No, then you you climb up, don't you? You do have to climb back up. And you realize the immensity of nature and you feel pretty good about yourself when you've done that. And then you remind yourself that, yes, national parks, America's best idea. Becky Lomax, thanks for writing USA National Parks and best wishes with your future research. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmira Hall. Thanks to our colleagues at KUER in Salt Lake City for studio help this week. Thanks to the BBC in London for their help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and link to our guests in the website notes for each week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.